is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Jonathan Fall. Uh, Jonathan Fall has recently left the European Commission after a career uh, spanning almost four decades, and his most recent job was the head of the UK Referendum Task Force. Jonathan, I've been wanting to talk to you about your, your most recent job for a long time, but now you've left the European Commission, now is a, a good opportunity, hopefully. First of all, I'd like to get a flavour of how the, the, the discussion, the negotiations took place between the, the EU, the European Commission, in effect, and the United Kingdom and its civil service. How, what kind of discussion was it? Was it a real, dis was it real negotiation or simply more of a, a civilised conversation between sort of consenting adults? <laughs> well, it was usually very simple. Um, but it was a real negotiation. Uh, certainly uh, towards the end, as we approached the uh, European Council meetings in December and February of 2016, uh, we were talking about uh, very detailed wording and texts. Uh, there were many, many discussions, uh, some uh, more formal than others, uh, and uh, I think the atmosphere was civilised throughout, but there were very uh, uh, difficult issues, quite obviously, uh, to be dealt with. Uh, and um, if one looks back at the, the various phases of the operation, I think from the election uh, of uh, the uh, Conservative government uh, in May, uh, until November when uh, Prime Minister David Cameron set out his uh, demands in a letter. There was uh, a period during those months of informal discussion uh, because the British had not set out in writing exactly what they wanted. It was pretty obvious to a very large extent uh, what they thought they wanted. Uh, but the discussions then were necessarily informal and then moved into a more formal stage. So there's certain parallels in the sense up to a point between that situation of the five months or so between um, the election, the re-election of the Conservative government and, the, and its formal letter to Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, and the situation after the, the referendum last year where, well, until the, re the very recent speech by Theresa May a few days ago in London, uh, we did not know, nobody seemed to know exactly where the government, the UK, was coming from in terms of its, uh, uh, its discussions with the EU27 post-referendum. But, uh, but you're saying in 2015 there, was plenty, there were plenty of opportunities for informal discussions. Well, there were, because um, the, uh, the British Prime Minister had made speeches, he had written uh, uh, newspaper articles, he had given interviews, we had the Conservative Party manifesto, of course, uh, so we had a number of source materials uh, and the British civil servants were reasonably clear uh, in explaining to us uh, what uh, the, the fundamental issues were. I think everybody understood that already at the time, but we didn't have uh, a formal uh, piece of paper setting the, uh, uh, the perimeters of the, of the various issues and we got that in November uh, and it was in the four categories which uh, ultimately were reproduced as categories, as chapter headings, uh, in uh, the uh, European Council decision in February. And as far as you can establish, since given the informality of it, did, did, you, did either side or both sides have a, have a feeling that uh, during those, that informal period, May 2015 to November, that this was going to be a relatively straightforward ex exercise or more complicated? Oh, no, no. I thought, uh, I think everybody thought all along that it was very complicated. 
uh, nobody ruled out a failure. Uh, and uh, there were some rather sticky moments when uh, uh, there were very fundamental disagreements about uh, what was possible legally, uh, what was uh, feasible politically. So, but when, so when uh, David Cameron formally sent this letter to Donald Tusk on the back of his speech at Chatham House, I seem to recall, around the same time, um, it strikes me, I'm sure to many other outside observers, that many, if not most, of the things he was demanding, quote-unquote, asking for, were, were things that the, the, the EU would certainly uh, acquiesce with, partially because they were already doing it, whether it's commitment to free trade, deepening the single market, uh, deregulation, better regulation, and so on. So these were not r remotely controversial, were they? No, they weren't. I mean, the wording had to be agreed. Uh, uh, there were, uh, you're quite right, there were several aspects of what finally emerged in the, in the European Council decision which were not particularly controversial. Uh, there were some which were, of course, uh, but there were things which needed to be said again. Uh, there was law which needed to be clarified, codified, explained. Uh, all that, I think, was done. Uh, and then there were uh, a number of very hot, new, difficult issues. Um, I wouldn't want it thought, by the way, that this was simply a process between the European Commission and, and the United Kingdom. There was that. Uh, the European Commission, by the way, nearly always uh, working very closely with the, uh, the Council of Ministers Secretariat uh, and, and the President of the European Council staff. And as we moved into the formal stage, there was a whole uh, series of uh, meetings involving all the other member states and the European Parliament uh, uh, through the so-called Sherpas, essentially personal representatives of Prime Ministers and Presidents, uh, and the permanent representatives, the ambassadors of each country in Brussels. So there was a multilateral dimension uh, added on to it. Uh, and even in the less formal stages, there were regular discussions among the uh, national ambassadors in the Committee of Permanent Representatives. So you paint a picture of this multilateralism, rather complicated, but obviously very inclusive uh, procedures where all these different institutions and bodies were were consulted and represented, uh, but if I'm not mistaken, the actual formal negotiations took place within less than three months, so early November to 2015 to early February 2016. So you managed to get quite a lot done in those formal three months of negotiation. Yes, because that was the stage where I mean, a lot of the groundwork had been done, and then it came down to thrashing out the text, the wording, uh, the form, uh, and uh, some of the final legal issues needed to be established. And, of course, there was a final political push uh, and final political uh, discussion. Because don't forget, throughout all of this process, in addition to the EU institutions talking to the British uh, and the other member states in Brussels taking part in the, in the formal EU-type process, there was a whole series of bilateral discussions going on, the British talking to individual countries uh, at all sorts of levels, diplomats, senior officials, mm. prime ministerial visits, foreign secretaries, uh, uh, meetings uh, and so on, and the Commission and no doubt the other EU institutions were talking to individual member states uh, as the occasion arose as well. So it was a very complex uh, series of um, discussions taking place which enabled us uh, uh, in the Commission, enabled the British and I think everybody else uh, to uh, focus in on what were the remaining problems and when you get into the last 
three months. And don't forget, there was a European Council meeting in December as well. So uh, that was the first formal uh, uh, high-level uh, meeting, and then the second one, conclusive one, in February. Uh, by then, by the end of uh, by the end of the year, you had uh, fairly. Good understanding everywhere of what the main issues were, and it came down to setting it all out in, in acceptable language. Right. I don't want to oversimplify or even misrepresent what you were all discussing, but I'd like to suggest that the, the key, or at least one of the key, if not the key, uh, areas of contention, at least, were the whole issue of, of free movement and in work benefits in particular. Uh, you said early on about, uh, it would, very subtly diplomatically, part of the exercise maybe and why the discussion was relatively civilized, I'm sure, was because you had to in a sense, sort of remind, if not educate, your, your counterparts about what was already uh, there on, in European statute books who didn't need ex extra negotiation. And if I may, Jonathan, I'd like to uh, quote at some length, but for, not for your benefit, maybe for our listeners, some of the aspects of the, the final agreement under the section of social benefits and, and free movement. I do so because I'd like you to comment on whether, to what extent, um, there is scope to use that in the negotiation on Brexit going forward. So very briefly, I quote, free movement of workers within the union is an integral part of the internal market, which entails, among others, the right for workers of the member states to accept offers of employment anywhere within the union. However, the social security systems of the member states uh, uh, are diversely structured, and this may lead members of the workforce to be attracted to certain territories without this being a natural consequence of a well-functioning market. It is legitimate to take the situation into account and to provide both at union and at national level and without creating unjustified direct or indirect discrimination for measures avoiding or limiting flows of workers of such a scale that they have negative effects both for the member states of origin and for the member states of uh, destination. And I go on briefly. Uh, whereas the free movement of workers entails the abolition of any discrimination based on nationality as regards employment, etc., uh, it, it, the risk, risk, this right may be subject to limitations on grounds of public policy, public security or public health. In addition, if overriding reasons of public interest, such as encouraging recruitment, etc., uh, make it necessary, uh, free movement of workers may be restricted by measures proportionate to the legitimate aim uh, pursued. Uh, free movement of uh, citizens is to be exercised subject to the limitations and conditions laid down the treaties and the right of economically non-active persons, presumably family members of uh, uh, immigrants in effect, to reside in the host member state depends under EU law on such persons having sufficient resources for themselves and their family members not to become a burden on the social assistance system of no, the host with, member with state. Respect, it doesn't mean family members only, it All right. means people... Just looking for jobs. All right. Okay. People who don't have jobs or a job offer, but are just looking, there are very strict limitations on what they can do. Right. So to be clear, thank you for that clarification. So to, to, to be clear, all that long quotes that I was just making there from the text uh, were, these were not new concessions given by the EU to the UK in the context of this negotiation. This is stuff already available to any member state according to EU law, correct? Yes. And, and applied every day. Perhaps, perhaps we are the victims of our own uh, 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 rhetoric on these issues. Free movement is very far from being uh, unlimited or unconditional. Uh, there are all sorts of conditions which member states may and do uh, impose, and not only on the free movement of workers, goods, services, all the single market freedoms, the much vaunted single market freedoms, so important, 
are subject to limitations, derogations, exceptions, some of which are written into the treaty, some of which are in legislation, uh, some of which are developed from the, the case law of the Court of Justice. So none of the free uh, movements is unconditional. That was always the case. And indeed, in recent years, the Court of Justice, perhaps aware of the wider context uh, in which the single market is developing, has given a number of judgments allowing member states to take quite restrictive measures in respect of people uh, moving around, particularly uh, without a job. So does that, that mean that, up to a point at least, that on the EU side of the negotiating table there was some sympathy for the, for the UK case, or, or rather exasperation that the UK didn't realise what was already available to it in terms of safeguards, in effect? Well, we all know that this is an issue in UK politics, but not only in UK politics. Many other member states have similar stresses and strains. Uh, we have been through... Uh, quite extraordinary developments in our uh, union and in our uh, societies and economies in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Mm. The massive enlargement, of course, which was followed by, uh, unconnected, which was followed by the biggest economic recession that anybody mm. uh, alive could remember. Uh, and uh, this, of course, caused all sorts of difficulties. And then we had a migration crisis with huge pressure uh, on uh, 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 national asylum and, and refugee systems from outside the Union all happening at the same time. So of course people were aware of the, uh, uh, the wider context and I think uh, EU politics, EU policies, EU law uh, uh, have uh, developed in ways which show uh, sensitivity to those wider issues, prove not to be enough for the UK. Uh, uh, and of course, an interesting question is whether uh, this was sufficiently uh, explained to the British people in the referendum campaign, not our responsibility, of course. But there's no doubt uh, that uh, the, the EU system showed itself capable of some adaptation. Oh, in that respect, this element of adaptation tucked away in this declaration, which I've been quoting at great length, is uh, some wording to the effect, the European Commission, and I appreciate this, this all these texts now have no sort of uh, political status, if you like, um, the European Commission will table a proposal to amend Regulation 492 stroke 2011 on freedom of workers within the Union to provide for a safeguard mechanism with the understanding that it can and will be used and therefore will act as a, as a solution to the United Kingdom's concerns about the exceptional inflow of workers from elsewhere in the European Union that is seen over the last years. So that is an example, is it not, of the Commission trying to show some, some sympathy and some flexibility. Yes, not only the Commission, but also, don't forget, this was agreed by all 28 member states at the end of the day. Now, that refers to something new, not something which exists already. We would have had to create a completely new mechanism to deal with one specific issue, which was that in the particular case of the United Kingdom, uh, it was explained to us, uh, the uh, specific characteristics of that country's social security system were understood to have acted as, if you like, an unnatural incentive uh, to, uh, uh, to the free movement of, of workers. And that is because in the UK you have this system of uh, non-contributory in-work social security benefits which are granted to all workers on day one, in effect, uh, of uh, their beginning to work. 
uh, and not dependent in any way on what they may have put into the system beforehand. That, it was said, uh, had been part of what attracted large numbers of people from other member states to the, uh, to the UK's labour market, there were many other factors, I've no doubt. Uh, but that, it was said, was one of them, and we were asked to look at ways of addressing that. And that was an area where we didn't think that the existing law and policy uh, would go far enough, so we uh, undertook uh, to propose a special mechanism, which the UK no doubt would have used, mm. uh, to phase in entitlement to these in-work, non-contributory social security benefits for workers from other member states. So, at the beginning you said that when you started the discussion, all of you, certainly informally if not formally, there was a real concern of a possible failure. How did you fast forward all these months? Uh, how did all, everybody around the table uh, come to a collective view that the negotiations had run its course and that any, any discussion agreement that could be extracted had been extracted? Um, how did you come to that point and that decision to, to stop talking in effect? Well, there were deadlines uh, uh, written into the process. Uh, the British government had made commitments about holding the referendum. Uh, and uh, this is not a subject which should have been allowed, I think quite rightly, uh, uh, to fester on and on. So there was a, a very strong uh, desire uh, to, to deal with it. The union faced faces uh, other major challenges, big crises, and uh, one forgets this, and one shouldn't underestimate that the other 27 member states wanted very much the United Kingdom to stay yeah. in the European Union. So there was a strong desire uh, to, to reach an understanding without uh, in any way undermining the fundamental uh, principles of the Union, but taking account, as the Union always does, of a particular problem faced by a member state. And so when you've come to this accord and it's been formalised, um, how... In your judgment, how confident do you think your political masters were on the EU side? I won't ask too much about the UK government, they can speak for itself. How confident were they, you think, that, they, that what was agreed was a, was a good deal and could be used to, to maximum benefit by, the, by David Cameron? Well, that wasn't our uh, judgment to make. Uh, we're not, uh, the European Commission is not, uh, uh, doesn't have its finger on the pulse of the British electorate. That's uh, what the Prime Minister mm. Uh, uh, had uh, and uh, we did not take part in the campaign we didn't have any mm. input into how the campaign was uh, structured or managed that was a matter for the uh, uh, for the government it was a matter for the prime minister and ultimately for the camp the remain campaign uh, and uh, we took no view on that we were very much in the prime minister's hands right so fast forward now let's Let's maybe wind this conversation up by talking about the, the current situation. Um, we have the nomination, the appointment of Michel Barnier as uh, the. Kind could, of could I make one, one other yeah. point? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want people to have the impression that this was the only difficult point right. uh, and all the other stuff was easy. I mean, the, the relationship between the uh, non Euro member states and the Euro member states, uh, which didn't feature much in the campaign was a very, very delicate and difficult issue uh, to get agreement on and then to get uh, precise wording on. Uh, the United Kingdom, of course, uh, uh, saying very clearly that it did not intend to join the, uh, uh, the single currency, did not intend to join 
the banking union even, and with the City of London on its territory, had a particular set of concerns. And the other member states, both the other uh, uh, non-Euro countries with all their different positions and the 19 of the Euro area, uh, all uh, had uh, very strong views on exactly how that relationship should uh, uh, should develop in the future. Now, we had a very good rehearsal of all these issues in the negotiation of legislation on the banking union. So some of the ideas, the mechanisms, even the, uh, the technical wording uh, uh, was available for, for, for use uh, and, and consensus had been reached on various things, but that was a, a difficult issue. And then, uh, uh, this may sound strange to some, but the uh, the notion of ever closer union among mm. the peoples of Europe uh, was a delicate issue as well in the discussion because uh, it's an expression which is understood in different ways in different places. Uh, obviously, attention was focused on it again uh, as a result of, of these negotiations. The member states wanted to make it pretty clear what was possible and what was not. Uh, and I think it was quite brave of everybody concerned uh, to reach the agreement uh, that was reached in the European Council on, in February, uh, essentially to say that the, uh, the notion of Evercluse Union did not require the United Kingdom to take any further steps in European integration, didn't want to. Right, okay. Well, thank you for setting that straight. But let's try and move forward then to the current situation. Yeah. We have the nomination appointment of Michel Barnier as the European Union's official negotiator. I'm not sure if that's his correct title. Um, you know Michel Barnier pretty well. He was your boss when he was a commissioner for in financial services and Intel and Market. You were the director general of that part department in the European Commission. Um, but from your own knowledge of the gentleman, uh, how do you think he's, he is approaching and will approach the upcoming formal negotiations with the United Kingdom? Well, he's a man of great integrity. Uh, he uh, will no doubt be taking very seriously his role as representative of the Union and its interests in this uh, discussion. Uh, he uh, is well disposed to the UK. Uh, I occasionally hear and read uh, nonsense, nonsense suggesting uh, that that's not the case. It is very much the case. And I think his tenure uh, in the internal market and, and services uh, uh, portfolio uh, confirms that, uh, but uh, he is a, a true believer in the importance of the European Union for Europeans uh, and uh, will want to craft the best possible uh, agreement, uh, but certainly one which will uh, defend and protect and promote uh, the interests of the Union uh, uh, and not allow any undermining of those interests. Right. So within two months, Theresa May, if she sticks to her word, will trigger the famous Article 50, uh, formally opening negotiations with the EU 27. Uh, do you have any thoughts or insights even based on your experience during this in negotiation for the new settlement we talked about at great length, spanning in effect almost a year between the informal and the informal aspects of these discussions, uh, which is sort of en enlighten us, educators, about how you think the, the, the discussion, the negotiations will, 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 will map out going forward? Well, we are in a completely different situation now. I'm not sure that there, there are any useful parallels to be drawn. We are now negotiating within uh, the terms of, the, of, of Article 50 of the treaty, the withdrawal of a member state. It's never been done before. 
uh, and there are all sorts of issues which simply didn't arise uh, in the negotiation in which I was involved. Uh, just looking at the press coverage, you can see that people are going to be very worried about money. Uh, there are right. uh, ongoing uh, liabilities and commitments which will have to be settled. Uh, that, of course, didn't arise in, uh, in my negotiation because we were negotiating with the United Kingdom as a member state, uh, uh, not as a country uh, on the verge of leaving the Union altogether. So it is a completely different setup. I'm sure that some of the basic uh, structures and techniques will not be particularly different. You will need that same combination of uh, uh, rather small, uh, tight uh, groups discussing legal wording and uh, and technicalities and a wider political uh, involvement of uh, the other European institutions and the other member states. This is a collective issue. This is the union, uh, the 27 in effect, uh, negotiating with uh, uh, a member state for its withdrawal. Uh, some of the features of it no doubt uh, uh, will be uh, not very different from what I saw, but I think the, the range of subjects mm. uh, and uh, the legal framework are completely different. Yeah, and in maybe in its sort of operational but also political terms, it seems to me a big difference between your negotiation, quote-unquote, and, and this one, is that um, there's been no possibility, of course, much to the UK's uh, maybe irritation of informal talks in advance of the formal triggering of Article 50, on the one hand. On the other hand, you talked about a number of bilateral talks that the UK conducted with its EU partners at member state level that I suspect will not be happening either in, in the context of Article 50. Do you agree? I've no idea. No, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, the British Prime Minister and uh, her ministers will be talking to their counterparts in other countries. There will be visits and discussions and summits and, uh, uh, and all the rest of it. All that will go on. Uh, uh, so uh, I imagine there will be um, at least attempts uh, to raise some of these issues but so far what we've seen I think uh, very clearly is that the 27 member states uh, holding together uh, are saying uh, that all discussions on these issues are channeled through uh, the, uh, the Brussels institutions in effect and, and the Article 50 process. Uh, it's important, of course, for Mr. Barnier and his team that that solidarity hold uh, fast uh, because uh, he needs the full backing. He will have a mandate from them, of course. He needs the full backing of the member states in what he's doing. Okay, one final question, Jonathan, uh, which is obviously linked to what we've been discussing for the past half an hour almost, uh, but also a separate discussion, which is about... British influence anyway in the European Union. It seems up to a point, I would argue, that we are irrespective of Article 50 and, and the result of the referendum, slowly but surely writing ourselves out, out, of, the, out, of, out of the plot, as it were. Senior people like you are, are leaving the European Commission. Uh, we may have to give up you know, key posts in the European Parliament. We've had the, the recent manoeuvrings uh, um, over the, the permanent representative to the European Union, the United Kingdom, and, and so on and so on. Do you see any? Do you feel that the the UK or do other EU twenty seven feel that the UK is, is has already lost interest in in the European Union and more importantly has lost influence in the European Union? Well, Brexit means Brexit, as the Prime Minister uh, regularly says, and of course, uh, leaving the Union means that there won't be uh, British citizens in key positions in the organisation. 
uh, and that is something we're going to have to get used to. Uh, the, um, there won't be members of Parliament from the United Kingdom and there won't be uh, commissioners from the United Kingdom, there won't be judges from the United Kingdom and there won't even be uh, uh, directors general uh, 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 from the United Kingdom either after Brexit, we're not there yet. Uh, is if your question is is influence waning already? Yes. As uh, as Brexit looms, hard for me to judge. I mean, I retired because I'm getting old, uh, <laughs> not because I felt uh, that I could no longer do my my job in the Commission. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that the concerns and interests of a country uh, which uh, won't be around the table in a couple of years' time are of uh, less relevance than those uh, which are going to be around the table in a couple of years' time. So the sum, I think, inevitability about all of this has to be managed carefully. I think, if I may say so, the British have contributed an enormous amount to the life of the European Union uh, these last 40, 50 years, uh, and that won't fade away immediately. Uh, but uh, we're leaving, we're leaving. That's what it means, and uh, obviously British influence will uh, uh, will fade away uh, once we've left. Okay. On that note, Johnson Fall, thank you very much for your time. Mm -hmm.